Hi, and welcome to episode two of the Same Therapy Podcast. And why do we call it that? Well, it's because telebehavioral health is the same therapy as in-person health, just a different couch and over a computer. In this episode, we're joined by the therapist Trisha Wan and our clinical director Kelly Skripchak in a discussion about what normal means for different people and the search for a sense of that normalcy amid COVID-19. Now, how can we cope with these changes in our society and how can we feel grounded and connected to others with quarantines and social distancing? Well, Kelly and Trisha help us answer these questions and also give us tips on self-care. Now, we'd love your feedback, so please leave a review or drop us an email at Corey, that's C-O-R-E-Y, at telebehavioralhealth.us. Enjoy the show. Hello, and uh, welcome to Same Therapy Podcast. It's uh, Corey Hart here, CMO of uh, TelebehaviorHealth.us, and I'm joined with uh, two very special guests. This is our second episode. Really love introducing the team that we have uh, amassed here in our incredible organization. First off, I'd like to introduce uh, Kelly. Uh, Kelly, hi. Hi there. Um, How do I pronounce your last name? Oh, that's a good question. I've never heard that question before. (laughs) It's uh... (laughs) a... It, you can pronounce it as Scripchak. Okay. Kelly Scripchak, uh, tell us uh, what you're doing here with uh, telebehavioralhealth.us and, uh, and, and like, what, what's, your, what's your story? All right. Well, um, I was just brought on about um, two months ago as the, the coronavirus kind of exploded in the United States. And I'm super, super excited to be here. Um, I was actually honored to be offered a, a leadership position within the company. So um, that's really exciting. It's been very, very exciting uh, kind of getting to know the ropes and getting to know the team and the new clinicians coming on board. Um, but let me tell you a little bit about my background and um, what brings me here. I've actually been in the field for about 12 years now. I graduated from Grand Valley State University with my master's in social work degree in 2008. Um, And then soon after that, actually moved to the mid-Michigan area um, and was honored to have been hired at a nonprofit agency in Lansing, Michigan. And at that nonprofit agency, I was able to serve the adolescent population. I was an outpatient substance abuse therapist for adolescents in the area. Many, many of the teenagers that I worked with were considered high-risk teenagers. I worked a lot with the probation officers and a lot with uh, uh, residential placements. And really, most of my education, I attribute to this job. It was a, a real um, learning curve, I guess I would say, for me to be able to engage with these wounded and hurting teens that didn't trust many people coming in. Um, I loved, loved, loved what I did there. But um, years after I started there, I actually started a family as well. So I became torn. Um, I found myself preaching and talking to a lot of people about the importance of secure attachments with children and, and healing attachments. Yet when my kids were babies at three months, I often, I had to take them to daycare um, because I needed to work. So I often refer to my kids as daycare children because ever since the age of three months until just recently when I was able to take this position, they have been in daycare every day because I've worked full time every day until then. So, How old are um, they now? 
oldest son is nine years old now mm -hmm. and my youngest son is seven years old. So they are quite excited for a new season of our lives now. So that's awesome. Yeah, um, it is. So, um, you know, I, you and I've had a lot of opportunity to chat and you, you, you continually call yourself a brain geek. Like when did that happen? When did you turn into the brain geek? Yeah. Good question. Um, actually along the way when I, um, was at the nonprofit working. Um, it was around 2010. I was given an opportunity to be able to partner with Michigan State University and Western Michigan University in a learning collaborative with a, a treatment modality called trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. And I was the first cohort of field supervisors to go through this learning collaborative. And once I've gone through it, then I was, I was then paired with MSW students. What's, so a, what's I, an MSW? Uh, a master social worker. Okay. All right. For the, for the listening audience. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Um, so I was working with um, Michigan State University with their social work, master level social work students providing education. And along the understanding or learning trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, you learn how trauma affects the brain. And if you can understand how trauma affects the brain, then you can more diligently teach your, your clients about what you're trying to work on with them. If they have a legitimate reason of like what we're trying to do here, then they're more able to internalize the relaxation skills that you're trying to teach them or the effective regulation skills that you're trying to teach them. So as soon as I had that understanding, I just started finding all of the people who were doing the brain research in the field, like Dan Siegel and Bruce Perry and Bonnie Badenoch and Janina Fisher, all of these people who are headliners of, of understanding um, trauma treatment and understanding the neurobiological effects of trauma. Um, I just couldn't get enough of it. And so that kind of in 2010, it sort of started and it's slow little bits and pieces. It's in just like a, it's like a string that you can't stop pulling, right? I can't, I can't. That's, uh, yeah. I, yeah. I'm really excited <laughs> to uh, get into that. Like as we move forward through these like next bunch of episodes too, because it seems like it's, it's a never ending body of work there that you're getting into. Um, now you touched on a little bit earlier. I, I would like to ask you, you know, um, so why telebehavioralhealth.us? Like why, why now? And, and maybe like why you think it, now is the best time for telebehavioral health to be around. Yeah, absolutely. So for me personally, telebehavioral health now, because I have to figure out how to be a stay at home school teacher and, and work to provide for my right. family. And that's and, not a unique, that's not, that's not like a lot of people are feeling those pressures, right? Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a lot of pressure in, in my children are young right now. So I was working at a physician's office, um, providing holistic care. So I worked with the doctors providing, um, counseling. And when COVID happened, we did not provide, um, telehealth. We were doing face-to-face -face appointments and, 
Uh, we really slowed down because I think there was a lot of fear for our patients for um, coming out in public and, and, and coming to their appointments. So it reduced our capacity. But at a certain point, I think that there was um, an increase. So, so we started building back up and um, they wanted me to come back full time. And I was really torn. I was really torn. But right at that crossroads, Telebehavior Health came around. And I know Susie. Um, previously, we have a previous relationship. So I reached out to her as I was understanding what tele, telehealth was. And I had some questions. And, and along the way, doors just began to open. And it was perfect timing to be able to make the transition into telebehavioral health. So we're like absolutely filled with gratitude that you're on the team. And I really enjoyed working with you these uh, last couple months. Um, I would love to uh, introduce everyone to Trisha, who's on the show uh, today as well. Same, same question. Like, uh, like wh where, where do you come from, Trisha? Like, why, why, why are you you? Well, thanks so much for having me, Corey. Um, I'm glad to be here today. I, like Kelly, have been working in the field for several years, um, about the same duration of time, somewhere probably between 12 and 13 years at this point. And I spent most of my work uh, working in a nonprofit organization in my community. I started out actually in a very similar place that Kelly started and um, kind of learned alongside her in some different avenues very <laughs> the very beginning of our career. So it's really Susie as well. So it's very ironic that we're kind of all coming back together, but also uh, very neat because we've all grown so much since then and have a lot to offer as we're putting together this team. But um, I started my career in a runaway and homeless youth shelter um, as a direct care worker, and we provided basic shelter services to at-risk youth. And that really kick-started my career in a direction um, that fueled a passion for me to work with youth and families. I saw a real need um, as I experienced a lot of youth who were just they were just hurting. Um, they had experienced so many things in their young lives. And I saw a lot of parents that were really frustrated and a lot of parents that didn't know what to do and a lot of families that felt broken and disconnected. And I was at that point um, getting my master's from Grand Valley State University and decided that I really wanted to take the direction of being a clinician and providing um, therapy. And so from there, I worked as a home-based therapist, working with youth and families in our community, serving in really any facet or capacity that you might think of that any one person could do in clinical work with a family. There was individual work with the, with the youth, there was individual work with the parents, um, working with them as a family. I was involved with the court system, I was involved with schools. I was involved with families in crisis in the middle of the night and on weekends and kind of just whenever they might have needed somebody. I've always thought that young people deserved a place to be heard and a place to feel safe. And I, I kind of come from a belief system that I don't think anyone should have to hurt. I don't think that anyone should have to go without support. And so um, I see a great opportunity to connect with youth and teach them how to do this at a young age because I don't think that we do that very well and in schools and other places. Um, we don't teach about emotions. We don't teach about 
how to take care of ourselves. They don't teach about how to go out and live life in the world. We kind of turn, <laughs> we turn 18 and it's like this magical time where all of a sudden you wake up tomorrow and you're supposed to know how to do it. You're supposed to know how to be an adult and live life. But a lot of people have never been taught any of those skills and have no idea how to do it. And we have parents who say, well, today's the day, go and figure it out. Um, or people who are just disconnected as it is. So um, I spent several more years of my career working with youth and families in that capacity. Um, I then supervised in that program as well. Um, and from there, I became a sort of supervisor slash program management kind of role um, in a wraparound program within that organization. And from there, kind of came back full circle as a therapist in that very same runaway and homeless youth shelter um, at that organization. And then from there, I decided that I wanted an opportunity to work more long-term with folks. And so I have been working as a full-time outpatient clinician with youth, adults, families, younger kids, older teenagers, and then now here we are jumping on board at Telebehavioral Health US as well. And uh, with all that, with all that background, uh, uh, where do, like, why do you see uh, Telebehavioral Health US being like, why, why is now the best time? You know, I, I heard Susie and I've heard Kelly and I've heard Rachel speak a little bit about this too, but you know, we have some, some barriers in the system in which social workers work and I find in all of the roles that I've worked in, I see, and I've seen myself and I see other clinicians feeling really stretched thin and we are asked to wear a lot of hats and play many roles. And while on the one hand, I really enjoy all of that work, um, there's not a lot of time to slow down and, and give focus to things that really deserve more significant amounts of attention. And I feel very strongly about providing services to anyone who might need them. And so I saw childbehavioralhealth.us as an opportunity to bring services to those people while still allowing myself time to be able to slow down and kind of step back a little bit and give people the attention that they really deserve in treatment. I was getting ready to start my own practice prior to COVID-19. And it was going to be a brick and mortar practice and I was going to be serving people in person. And this crisis that we've experienced has sort of pushed me to think in other directions. And I very quickly jumped on board with telehealth as an avenue to serve people regardless of what's going on in the world. And I really believe in the mission and the values of this team. And I'm really glad to be here. Well, we're, we're absolutely honored to have you aboard. Um, and you bring a lot of perspective and experience, um, expertise. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think there are two clinicians we have uh, that are maybe even better suited to this topic that we, are, that we came up with, uh, which is you know, normalcy among COVID-19. Uh, in the descriptions and your backgrounds that you just described to us, um, we're, like, the normal is maybe even like, it's a, it's a terrible word, right? So like, what is like, what does normal even mean? Uh, maybe, uh, Kelly, you want to start us off there? Yeah, that's a really weighted, complicated question that you ask in, in these days, um, prior to COVID-19 happening, 
it feels like that is what is perpetually stressing people out right now because I think when you think of that word normal, I think the reality is is that most people don't know. They don't know. They're, they're, I think that anxiety often um, overwhelms people because they want to feel like they have control over something. They want to feel like they can they they have the answers. They they have the power to be able to to know what the future has in stake for them. And I think that there our society as a whole is just chronically anxious right now because we don't know. We don't know. Sure. And and Trisha, you were talking earlier about like this this idea of among like among that search for answers like truth and whatnot can you talk a bit about that like kelly said what is normal to begin with you know what's normal for me might not be normal for you or normal for kelly or the person who lives next door to me or to you or down the street um and regardless of what i might define normal as or you might define normal as i i feel like as we've entered into this state of crisis with COVID-19. And I, and I think this really happens anytime that we're in a state of crisis or in a state of panic or something becomes unsettling. There's a grasping for something to feel normal. I see people really struggling with trying to find their foundation of what felt like normal. And, and maybe a better term would be stability. Um, I think people are really looking for opportunities to feel stable, to feel certain about something. And when COVID-19 became a reality, you know, or hit closer to home, that really felt like it was taken away from people. And so there's this consistent reaching for something that feels normal. And it's been really hard for people to find, myself included. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of instability. I think there's a lot of fear. People are fearful of taking care of themselves, fearful of taking care of their families. How are they going to do that? What's that going to look like? Um, what might that look like two weeks from now or two months from now or even two years from now? I think we're left in this space of feeling uncertain and unsettled because we don't know how things are going to pan out. And I think it's very likely that what was once feeling normal probably won't really be where we land, you know, on the other side of this. I think we're going to be consistently looking for and creating what feels like our new normal and our new balance of stability. Metaphorically speaking, it just feels like the rug or the floor that they were standing on got pulled from underneath their feet. And it's kind of like what Trisha was saying. They're, they're, they're like desperate to find their grit. They're desperate to find something to stand on because it's a really, really scary place to be at a place where, you, where really you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. If you watch the news at all, there's, there's, you know, media about, you know, death tolls and, um, you know, wear your mask and CDC and doctors making, um, you know, guesses about what's going to happen with COVID in, in the future. But what I'm hearing is that it's quickly changing. So if they're, if they think 
one thing about COVID one day, it's not necessarily going to mean the same thing the next day. So I think it's just really, really scary for people because you can do your best to try to plan for the future, but nobody really knows. And that's a really scary place to be at. Now, uh, Trisha, you had you had some some really great things to say about how we're feeling, how we're processing it all. Like you, you talked about, like this might feel like grief. Yeah, you know, as we're processing all of this, I think there comes some anxiety. I think there comes some depression for people. I think there comes from some not feeling sure how to feel or what we're supposed to feel. Um, pressure and trying to figure that out. But I think there's a lot of grief attached to that. Um, we have had a sense of loss, a loss of what we once knew, a loss of what, you know, felt like stable, a loss of connection, maybe a loss of job, maybe a loss of a loved one through all of this. And some of that feels very heavy, you know, on any given day, I think we can really even break that down even further. You know, when, when we experience loss and, and when we are grieving something, we see people feeling very angry. We see, we see people feeling very frustrated. There sometimes can be a sense of denial, like is this all really happening? And maybe it feels too heavy, so we kind of tap out a little bit and we almost intentionally or unintentionally disconnect to protect ourselves as if it's not really even happening because it feels like it's too much. We get angry because things have been taken from us. We might have a sense of bargaining, trying to get back what once was or kind of going back to that whole idea of grasping for, you know, what we once knew and what we once felt safe in and having a hard time finding that. And the longer that it goes on, I think for some people, you know, depression really sets in because it can feel dark and it can feel heavy and it can feel isolating and lonely and disconnected. And we really kind of retreat back into ourselves and, and kind of get stuck or lost in that. And over time, there can be some acceptance. Uh, you know, I think at some point we often realize this is where we're at and this is what's going on for us. And, you know, when we look at where we're at with COVID-19, there's a sense of reality that we have to have at some point, right? Like, how do I acknowledge what's going on and that my life is continuing regardless of what stage or phase that we're in with the pandemic or that I'm in in my life or where I'm at with my grief? I've got to accept where we're at and, and find some ways to take care of myself and find some ways for my life to continue to move forward in a healthy direction regardless. Otherwise, I think we're going to risk being stuck. Kelly, with all that, What's happening in our brains? Like what, 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 what's happening in our bodies when we're going through all those stages? Yeah, so I don't know a ton of specifics about COVID or the specifics of what this virus is doing. What I do understand is I understand trauma. And I understand that trauma is anything traumatic is when stress situations overwhelm your capacity to be able to cope with it. And so what I'm seeing as a whole of our society is that it's almost like when our normal was taken away and we had to add the masks and kids couldn't go to school anymore and everyone had to stay home to do their, their jobs and you had to quarantine because of COVID. 
it almost felt like a systemic trauma was happening. And maybe there's a, there's something to be said for like trauma, like what does even trauma mean, right? It depends on the person. So I'm saying systemic trauma, but, but individually speaking, each individual can internalize depending on their coping capacities and in the support systems each individual could like trisha could be traumatized by this situation but because of my resiliency factors it's a hard situation but i'm not internalizing this as trauma does that make sense mm -hmm. so um when i think about trauma though i think about neurobiologically what happens in the brain what happens in our body when we're overwhelmed and essentially what happens is there is a mechanism in our brain and i like to call it the fire alarm of our brain but but really in uh brain terms it's called the amygdala and when when that is triggered or goes off essentially what that is is it's your body saying i feel like something is threatening my safety so I feel like um, COVID is threatening my safety. Am I gonna be? Am I gonna get COVID? And am I gonna go to the hospital? And am I gonna die alone? Like this is scary stuff that people are seeing and scary stories that people are hearing. And so when your amygdala gets triggered, what happens is essentially all of your unnecessary systems in your body shut down because all that is happening is they're fighting flighting or freezing or faking dead that's what your body wants to do it's in survival mode that's what happens when we get triggered and we're fearful of safety is that you go into survival mode which which is great if if you're in uh in a war where where you're gonna get hurt like you want that survival mode to happen it's a protective thing However, when it's on all the time, there are so many negative implications for that. And one of the negative implications is that it increases inflammation in the body. And when you increase inflammation in the body, um, it increases the likelihood of you having or getting some sort of disease, inflammatory disease like cancer, any digestive problems, um, IBS, Crohn's disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, headaches, migraines, the list can go on and on about the health implications of holding this stress in a chronic way in your body. Another negative implication that happens when you're walking around with a triggered amygdala all the time is that it actually causes all the blood and nutrients and minerals to actually flood to that part of your body that's on because we're surviving and it's actually taking away from the blood that's supposed to be flowing to your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain, I like to call it the computer part of the brain, is the thinking part of the brain, the part of the brain that helps to be able to regulate our emotions, to be able to calm ourselves down, the part of the brain that helps us to regulate our behaviors so we're, so we're not reacting in such huge ways like i like to think of road rage that's a good example of like regulating your behavior when something ticks you off for you to be able to stay calm that that happens in the prefrontal cortex thinking judgment calls pros and cons abstract thinking all of that stuff happens up here not here so when we're in a state of chronic stress and chronic fear and anxiety 
um, because our normal has been ripped away from us and, and we're feeling unsafe, our bodies are reacting in a protective way. And it's good because we want our bodies to protect you, but not all the time. If it's turned on all the time, it's going to start to affect your work life, your relationship life. It's going to affect your medical issues. It's going to affect your attention, your ability to be able to have attention to details. It's so important. I guess I would say it's so important in this time for self-care, for the ability to be able to, even though we don't know what's going to happen out there, do some internal work to be able to calm your internal self, to be able to, to turn off that fire alarm in your brain so you can get back to a place of calm. So right. um, those long lasting negative consequences aren't taking hold. Sure. So yeah, so we've, we've, we've kind of given up on the idea of normal, like the word normal, right? Now, Trisha, you, you have suggestions on self-care? Yeah, you know, I think self-care is really a very personal and individual kind of a thing. As we're talking about all of this stuff, something that might work for me may not work for someone else and, and vice versa. And so it's really important to kind of take some time and space for yourself to sort of continuously assess and evaluate where am I at? What's going on for me? How am I processing all of this stuff that's going on out in the world? How is it impacting me personally? And then sort of evaluating and assessing what level of impact that's having and deciding what sort of coping skills and tools and strategies you might need in order to bring yourself back into a state of stability, um, in order to self-soothe, in order to take care of that whole fight or flight response that's happening in your brain and in your body. Some things I find helpful, and I think that many people find helpful, are being able to create a sense of safety, and that can happen in a number of ways. So connecting with people, finding comfort and talking to friends, talking to family, finding outlets and avenues to express what you're feeling and having space to process that, finding things to do that distract us from the chaos and the fear and the anxiety that we might be feeling and engaging in some hobbies, getting some physical movement to really shift that focus in your brain from that spiraling of and racing of thoughts that are happening when we're when we're feeling overwhelmed or feeling traumatized to another part of the brain when we're moving and maybe we're outside and maybe we're doing something whether it's yoga or riding your bike or taking a walk or any number of activities that you might might want to engage in doing some grounding so finding some things and some strategies that bring you back to the present moment, depending on the level of fear and anxiety and panic you might be feeling, that can look like a number of different things. That physical movement can help with that, but so can kind of just taking a moment to breathe and getting some oxygen back to your brain and being able to acknowledge that wherever you're at. So noticing things in the room around you, playing into those five senses and really calming your body and bringing a sense of peace and comfort back to yourself, even if it's just for a moment, can really make a big difference. 
for me, it's, uh, it's cooking. <laughs> I just want to piggyback off of what um, Trisha was saying real quick, because I think for a lot of people, spirituality, especially in this time, is a really important place. It really helps them to be able to, to help people, whatever your belief systems are, to be able to put things into perspective. Sometimes understanding and believing that there's something bigger going on um, in our world right now can help really put a lot of people at ease. So spirituality and really connecting to whatever your belief systems are is also a really important coping mechanism that I wanted to piggyback off of um, what Trisha was saying. And just relationships. And um, a lot of what I'm hearing right now is that this is a really, really hard time because we're quarantined and connecting with people is not, it's not the same as what we were used to connecting with people. A lot of our connections with people are done um, via technology. And I think that that can be a good tool. It's a good tool. It's a great tool. It's good to be able to see people. But I also think that there are people who are, are really struggling with mental health because the isolation is so deep for them. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the importance of human relationship and the importance of connection as it applies to mental health. And at one point along my professional career, I heard about this study that was done. And this study was really enlightening when I heard about it. But um, essentially what it was is they did this study on this um, person and they hooked this person up to a bunch of monitors to monitor like, I'm guessing heart rate and, and just stress responses in general. And so they hooked this person up to these stress devices and they wanted to measure stress level. So they did a study where they had this person walk through this stressful experience on their own and they measured the stress response. Then what they did is they, they brought another human being in. Um, I think it was an important human being, like someone that they felt safe with. But I don't think it actually matters. I think just having another person is what matters. So they brought another person in um, and had this same person go through this stressful experience. And they measured the stress response that happened. And what they found is just by having another person be with them as they were going through this uh, stressful situation, it reduced their stress response by, by 50%. So um, that's actually really huge. And it tells us so much about the importance of human relationship and connection as it applies to mental health. And especially as it applies to what we're going through right now, it's so important to be able to engage in helping and healing relationships. And that's what Telebehavioral Health US stands for. We want to be more far reaching. We want to reach out to people in locations and in areas that, that are underserved. So at the end of the day, relationships are just so important for mental health and maintaining that human connection is really, really important. Well, thank you very much. You know, uh, some, just a couple of quick last thoughts, some, maybe some last uh, gems of advice. Uh, you know, Tricia, I don't know if you have something. Yeah, I think regardless of what's going on out in the world around us and regardless of how long COVID-19 really lasts and, how, and, and the impact that it's going to have on us, I think it's really important to do our best to take a minute and just give ourselves space and permission to feel however it is that we're feeling. 
today might look different from tomorrow and that's okay. Today we might feel a great amount of grief and sadness or anger and frustration um, and whatever it is, we need permission to just be where we're at regardless of what that might be on any given day. And then engaging in some of those steps that you feel are really, you know, speak to you around self-care and being able to take care of whatever it is you need to find that sense of stability and safety regardless of what's going on around us. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And, and Kelly, what, what are some of the more common, quick, simple things that you're just sort of like comforting people with? Like what is a good takeaway? For a lot of people who are struggling with anxiety and who are really struggling with like wanting to know, wanting to have the answers, I really am giving them this motion of kind of lifting their hands up in the air and holding them up as this, as this motion of letting go. Um, because I think the more we indulge ourselves in the news and the more we bathe ourselves in trying to understand, the more it increases our fear and our anxiety and this feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. And so what I, what I actually do in my sessions is I actually have them practice holding their hands up and, and, and feeling what it feels like to let go of the burdens and let go of this heavy stuff that they just cannot carry all by themselves. I love that. I was just holding my hands up and it works. Kelly, Trisha, so honored to have you here. Thank you so much for your time and, and giving that to us and, and all this incredible insight. Really appreciate it. And so yeah, to our listeners, just maybe a quick goodbye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us today. It was an honor to share some space and talk about what's going on in the world. I look forward to having you both here again. And, uh, and then we do this every Tuesday. It'll be published every Tuesday. That's the same therapy podcast from telebehaviorhealth.us. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks so much, everybody.